Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, indeed, we give you thanks because this invitation to come to Jesus is an invitation repeated over and over in Scripture. And we recognize that we come to one who is our great high priest, one who understands what it means to suffer as a human being, one who has walked where we have walked, in a broken world filled with suffering and, and hardship. And as we look around us, Father, we recognize that there are people here who come and this Christmas season is a burdensome season because their life is filled with the struggles of family, situations that they cannot change, situations that bring pain, personal situations that they cannot even share with people around them. And so, Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest who knows our needs, who understands our hurt, who understands our pain because he himself bore pain. And he was tempted beyond what we have been tempted because he withstood temptation to its fullest extent. And so thank you that we have a great high priest who not only understands and who intercedes for us, we have a great high priest who is able to help us because where we have failed, he has triumphed. He has obeyed to the end. And because he has obeyed to the end, he is able to help that throne that ought to be a throne of judgment for sinners like us is a throne of grace. Grace purchased by Jesus Christ so that from it mercy flows to help us in our time of need. And so we can indeed have joy, not because of the circumstances we're in, but because the joy that we have is grounded in the certainty that we have a great high priest who intercedes for us, who has triumphed over sin, over death, over Satan, and who is even now at work in our lives, in control even of the situations that we're facing that give us hurt and cause us grief. And he is using those very situations to draw us to himself, to refine our character, to make us more like him. And so in the midst of our tears, we can have joy. Joy that comes from knowing this great and glorious Savior. And so, Father, as we come to your word, we ask that you would teach us this joy as you teach us to trust in Christ and Christ alone. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 1. We'll be considering Luke chapter 1. 
verse 57 to the end of Luke chapter 1. And I guess at this point, you know where I got my title for the series of Luke. And yes, it, it happened while we were at the Sing Conference singing, Come Unto Jesus. And I was thinking of the series on Luke, and it just clicked. That's the title, and that's the song that captures what Luke, or the, the theme of Luke. Now, at this point in the month, I think the wait for Christmas, or probably Christmas presents, must be driving the kids crazy. Or, more accurately, must be driving parents crazy. Waiting is hard, isn't it? We're not in control, and we feel very helpless. A friend of ours had a very uncertain November because he was waiting for his wife to give birth. And when it finally happened, the guy was so happy, he sent, uh, at least his people like me, a text at 11 o'clock in the evening. Never mind that I was fast asleep. It was a very nice thing to wake up to at 6 a.m. to see, oh, baby finally came. And we were happy for them. Just as the neighbors of Elizabeth and Zechariah were very happy for them. They rejoiced with them because, according to verse 58, they recognized God's mercy towards Elizabeth. It is a mercy that removed her reproach because she was unable to conceive. But then, because we live in a fallen world, their rejoicing moved and turned into disagreement. Verse 59. Because their friends and family wanted to name this baby Zechariah after his father. But Elizabeth, according to verse 60, insisted, No, he shall be called John. That was the name that the angel had given to this baby. And that broke with tradition because Zechariah and Elizabeth did not have any relatives with the name John. So they appealed to Zechariah, who at that, up to that point was still unable to speak. If you recall, he, hadn't been he had not been able to speak since he refused to believe Gabriel's good news that they would have a child. Imagine being silent for nine months. For some of you, that's... Oh. <laughs> for some of you, that's death. But the fact that Elizabeth knew that the child should be named John indicates that Zechariah had actually learned this lesson. It turns out that you can teach an old dog new tricks. See, walking with God means that we are to be lifelong learners. We never arrive in this life. And true godliness is demonstrated by its willingness to learn and, in the case of Zechariah, receive correction. And we see Zechariah demonstrating his trusting submission to God when he takes a tablet in verse 63. There were tablets during that time that just not digital ones. <laughs> this one was a wax tablet. And he wrote, his name is John. Now, Zechariah doesn't decide the child's name. It wasn't a decision he's making. He is declaring the name 
that God had given his child. It was an expression of faith. And, that expression, and at that expression of faith, his punishment is reversed. His tongue is loosed, and we are told that he gives praise to God in verse 64. And the people's wonder at the birth of John turns to fear, according to verse 66, because they recognize the hand of the Lord was with him. Now, according to James Edwards, hand of the Lord is a metaphor for God's activity in creation and redemption. If you recall, in, during the plagues, the, the magicians who tried to replicate one of the miracles said, uh, this is the finger of God. And that's what that redemptive aspect is about. It signifies that John's birth is in continuity and character with the manifestation of God's redemptive activity in the history of Israel. In other words, the people realized that in the birth of this baby, God was at work acting on behalf of his people. After centuries of waiting, redemption was coming. And since the preeminent expression of redemption in the Old Testament was the deliverance from Egypt, the people were, were fearful, were amazed because they were anticipating, hoping for a second exodus that would free them from Roman domination. And so Zechariah, filled with the Spirit, prophesies. This is very likely what he said in praise. He is explaining what God was about to do. So let's read verse 68 to verse 79. This is Zechariah's song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now, Zechariah's song is commonly called the Benedictus because the first word is, blessed be the Lord God. It's a benediction. And just like Mary's Magnificat, Luke includes the song of Zechariah in order to give us the theological implications of the event. Now, where Mary's Magnificat reminds us of the, the song of Hannah and the Psalms, the Benedictus recalls the words of the prophets. That's why we read Zephaniah 3 earlier. And where Mary's song of praise moves from her humble circumstances to God's work, 
Zechariah's joyful song begins with God's action before he addresses John, his newborn son. Zechariah blesses God because God isn't just coming for a state visit or a fact-finding mission. He is coming to redeem his people. Look at verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. There's an inclusion here of the visitation of God in verse 68 and in verse 78. The notion of God visiting forms an inclusion for this song and borders that song. He has come to bring redemption. And in verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for his people. The horn is a symbol of strength. So Zechariah is celebrating the fact that God is exerting his infinite might in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. That's why there's that reference to salvation for us in the house of his servant David. He is pointing to Jesus, the mighty warrior, the triumphant, conquering king who brings the salvation that God had promised. And so he is bubbling over with excitement. Unfortunately, we don't necessarily share the excitement of Zechariah because we are looking at this text after the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are looking back to the fulfillment of God's promises. And it's easy to take that for granted. But for Zechariah and his people, they, were, they had been waiting for redemption since Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 B.C. So imagine waiting for 500 years. They had returned to the land. They had rebuilt Jerusalem. They'd rebuilt the temple. But as far as they were concerned, they were still in captivity because they were still under the rule of foreign nations. And Rome was just the latest enemy and oppressor. Imagine waiting for so long so long that you feel almost hopeless. Just as Zechariah and Elizabeth had lived with the hopelessness of their infertility, Israel's situation seemed hopeless. We can sympathize with how they felt. Remember, and I apologize for this, remember COVID. Yo, remember the feeling of Hopelessness and despair. <laughs> when we felt as if this would never end. It's hard to keep trusting God's promises when things look bleak, right? We pray, we obey, but it seems as if God has forgotten us. Remember a long time ago, I wasn't able to work and I didn't know when I'd be able to get back to work because I had undergone radiation and I was severely weakened by my myasthenia gravis. And there was no timetable. You go to the neurologist and they tell you, oh, you'll get better when you get better. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I was frustrated. 
But looking back, I realize even when I didn't see it, God was at work teaching me, first of all, to find my identity in Christ and not in my work. And God was humbling me and reorienting my desires. And in his perfect time, he brought me back to work. 18 very excruciatingly long months later. See, even when things seem hopeless, God is at work. As the psalmist said in Psalm 30, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The trouble is we don't know which morning it will be. But we know that God is faithful to his people. That's what this text is telling us. And that's what Zechariah is celebrating. That God is finally keeping his promise to show them mercy and save them. And it is a salvation both political and spiritual. As Thomas Schreiner would explain, Zechariah probably understands since he is godly, and knows Israel's history well, that ultimately the political and spiritual cannot be separated. Israel is oppressed by the Romans because of its sin, and thus it needs both spiritual and political deliverance. Zechariah does not realize that spiritual deliverance will come first, and political deliverance will follow in the eschaton, that the new order of the ages will be realized when the kingdom arrives in its fullness. But at that point, Zechariah was excited, was joyful, because he could see that God was finally keeping his covenant promise, not just to David, but also to Abram. Look at verse 72 and 73. You notice, he says, To show mercy, promise to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. So that you realize there's an even longer time frame going on here. It's more than 500 years. It's a couple thousand years, maybe. And Zechariah then alludes to Zephaniah 3.15, the passage that David read earlier, where God's people would no longer fear evil because he would eliminate their enemies and better yet, remove the judgment against them. He says in verse 74-75 that the deliverance God would bring about would enable them to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. It recalls Zephaniah 3 verse 15. And Zephaniah then, or Zechariah, sorry, is reorienting our understanding of salvation. We often think of, our, of salvation in terms of being rescued from condemnation, which is true enough. But we often forget God's purpose in saving us. And Zechariah, in verse 74 and 75, is pointing out that we are saved to serve God, not to gratify our selfish desires. Notice, that we, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, salvation, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. See, redemption means that we belong to God to serve his purposes. And, and, and that tells us that redemption, salvation 
is broader than we understand. God doesn't just save us from sin's condemnation. That's great, but there's more to come. He is freeing us from sin's controlling grip so that we might serve him. See, the promise of the new covenant is that God would change our hearts so that we would treasure him above all and submit to him in trusting dependence so that we serve God out of gratitude rather than fear because he's rescued us. Because salvation means that God delivers us from our willful revolt and mistrust of him. And he is restoring us to the way he had designed us to flourish. We are being given the privilege of living for him for the rest of our lives. And that's what true freedom is all about. It is being able to serve God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength as God designed us to be. And so from there, Zechariah then turns from God's action to John's role in God's saving purposes. In other words, how God will use his son. And he alludes to Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 verse 3 when he declares in verse 76 that John would prepare the way for the Lord. And here's something that you need to notice. Since John is pointing to Jesus, Zechariah then implies that Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is none less than God in the flesh. Come to visit his people. But here's the twist. The manner of Jesus' coming, of God's visitation, is completely unexpected. As Daryl Bach would observe, Though our God is awesome and powerful, he uses that power in surprising ways. He sends a king who leads initially not with a sword, but with his word. He rescues not through a bloody war, but with a new way. He leads not just with might, but with light, his teaching and life. When we think of a promised king, we think of a palace and knights the king's army arrayed to defend his people. Jesus' kingship does not seclude itself in a palace, nor does he have a round table. This king walked among his people and lived as they did. He was baptized by the one pointing the way to him because life is not a function of power as the world tends to think, but is a reflection of character and light. See, God's ways are very different from our ways. And you see that difference in the way John provides knowledge of salvation to his people by pointing to Jesus who brings salvation. Notice the definition of salvation, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And Zechariah's words cut to the root of our predicament. We are sinners who have rebelled against God. And that's why no amount of social engineering, of education, of economic policy can change the situation. We are, separate, we are sinners who have rebelled against God. We are separated from God because we've rejected His rule and we've foolishly sought to live life on our own terms. 
God designed us to flourish in relationship with Him, but we've refused to acknowledge Him. And so now, we're like zombies. We're alive but dead. We're always consuming, but we're cursed with an insatiable hunger because we have turned away from Him who is the true life. And to make matters worse, because we have rebelled against God, we live under the judgment of this God. And Jonathan Edwards describes our plight in this way. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being drunk with your blood. Imagine that. You've heard of the sword of Democles, right? We've got an arrow pointed right at us. And you can't duck. This God who, that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince. And yet tis nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. That's our plight. We have picked a fight with God that we can never win. And nothing we do can change our situation. We desperately need a Savior. And that's what we celebrate, isn't it? That God has amazingly provided this Savior. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, then we urge you to flee from the wrath of God and come to Jesus. And I hope you understand. God's wrath does not compromise or contradict His goodness and holiness. His wrath promotes his steadfast goodness for truth is by nature intolerant of error as love is intolerant of indifference and hate and goodness is intolerant of evil. In the New Testament, God's wrath is not final and irrevocable but a penultimate warning of the consequences of rejecting the divine will. The object of warning is not to destroy but to effect repentance and renewal. But unfortunately, apart from the grace of God, we will not receive that warning because we're not just damned, we're oblivious to our plight. Notice what Zechariah says in verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's our plight. We're not just damned sinners. We are people who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. 
As David Garlick explains, the reference to the darkness and to the shadow of death are images of ignorance and sin. The existential plight of every human being. Humans cannot save themselves from this predicament because they live in darkness. Living in darkness means that one makes all the wrong choices that inevitably lead to spiritual and physical death. And that's you and me. Remember, I told you about that child of ours who shall remain nameless to this point. Gave him a key. What does he do? Well, he doesn't look for a car. He looks for an electrical socket. (sighs) And that's all of us. We just have more subtle, more sophisticated ways of looking for trouble. Now, thankfully, Zechariah's words allude to Isaiah 9, verse 2. People who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And God graciously responds to our plight of darkness by giving His Son, who is called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's why he refers to Jesus in verse 79 as the sunrise that shall visit us from on high. Jesus is God's solution to our blindness and condemnation. And the reason why we can have joy is that the wonderful beauty of God's action is that God is the offended party. He's the one who has every right to be angry with us. And yet, instead of coming to rain down His judgment upon us, Jesus has come to bring salvation. That's why Zechariah speaks of the tender mercy of our God. He shows us tender mercy by providing forgiveness of our sins and leading us into the path of peace. That is indeed mercy, isn't it? But we understand that that tender mercy is amazing because it comes at great cost. The reason Jesus can guide our feet into the path of peace is that he offered himself on the cross to appease God's wrath for our sins. The arrow of God's wrath that Jonathan Edwards talks about that was aimed at us was loosed not on us, but on Jesus. He exerted His mighty power so that He might lay down His life for us and rise again so that we might be reconciled to God. And His Spirit opens our eyes to the beauty of Jesus, to the goodness of Christ, so that we would trust in Him. And in trusting in Jesus, enter into faith union with Christ. Friends, that's real peace. It's not a mere feeling that all is well. It's not a mere ceasefire. It is the objective reality of a restored relationship with the true and living God. And Jesus achieved it, not by force of arms, 
but by arms outstretched on the cross. This is tender mercy. Jesus gives no less than himself for us. And as people who have been reconciled to God, we have the privilege of demonstrating that peace as a congregation, as a community, in the way we love and care for one another, in the way we speak to one another and speak of one another. The demonstration of that peace isn't just when we gather together to hear God's word. The demonstration of that peace happens before and after the service in the noise of people enjoying each other's company. Natural enemies coming together in love, in fellowship, in unity for no other reason but that the love of Christ binds us together because we are common beneficiaries of that salvation and we love to serve him by serving one another. And it's tough, isn't it? Because there are people you'd rather not talk to. There are people that are easier to avoid than to engage. But the spirit that Christ has given us, who dwells within us, gives us grace, leads us to walk in peace so that we may foreshadow the beauty of the kingdom of God. We anticipate that consummation in the way we engage with one another. And that's the way we say with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the reality of your grace. The infinite riches of your tender mercy. Oh Lord, we pray. May our gratitude for your goodness grip our hearts, soften our arrogance, teach us to love the people whom you have loved. Not because they are lovely, not because they, they make us feel good, or not because they're even easy to love, but because you have shown us tender mercy. And because they are objects of your tender mercy too, Father, help us to reflect the mercy we've received to those people so that together we may honor and serve you in righteousness and holiness as you lead us in the path of peace. Thank you, Father, that you're at work to make this a reality in our midst. Help us to lean into your work so that we would be a people that honor and glorify you as we reflect the beauty of the new creation. This we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.